all right, I'll, here, I've got, to, I got your question. I told you I might ask you. Nah, I won't ask you. I was going to ask you who read Ephesians, but I won't. <laughs> I'm seeing some hands, but I'm not, it's okay. I'm not going to make anybody feel bad. I don't want to make you feel bad. But maybe Wednesday night, I'll give you another opportunity. So between now and Wednesday night, read Ephesians through. I might ask Wednesday night how many of you have read, read through. Were you gonna, were, did I see a hand up? Was that like in the last two weeks? Well, of course I'd count that. <laughs> now, if it was more than two weeks ago, I'd have, to, I'd have to not count it. But if it was in the last two weeks, and okay. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear her, but uh, she said she's been reading Judges, but she, she took some time out and read her Ephesians uh, in preparation for what we were doing. So I give you an A. All right. Well, let's look at, we're at, let me see. We're at uh, chapter 1, and I'm not going to, I didn't finish 1, um, 3 through 14 in the first sur session, and I didn't want to do that in the service because I had kind of a sermon I wanted to do which I did so now I'm just going to go back catch up a little bit uh, in chapter one so if you if you're on your that handout that you have just to give you just if you're trying to follow along where we are on the front page uh, you've got author recipients greeting we already did that that's the opening then you look at halfway down the page praise and prayer now, the prayer was the sermon this morning, so we've already done that. And we, we, taught, we got into the praise a little bit, but the main heading here is praise for every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And I talked about that this morning, in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. And if you look at A under that, praise to God for his gracious election. So I did all I feel like I need to do with that. And also talked about under election, he talks about adoption. So we're going to pick it up now if you turn the page to the top of the next page. Praise to God for his gracious redemption. And then praise to God for the gracious gift of the Spirit that guarantees our inheritance. So we're going to, we're going to go to chapter 1. And I just want you to note the last phrase there. It's verse 6. Uh, and, and Because it's an important it's an important line that he repeats through chapter, this part of chapter 1. You see, under the praise of the glory of his grace, or under the praise of his glorious grace. Do you see that line in verse 6? Chapter 1, verse 6, which he, which he lavished upon us in his beloved Son. But that little phrase, under the praise of his glory. Now, look down. At, you, see that, you see it there in verse 6. Look now to verse 12 of chapter 1. In order that we might be under the praise of his glory. See that? See the praise of his glory? You hear the repetition of that? So we've got that in verse 6. We've got it here again in verse 12, under the praise of his glory. And then look at the verse 14, the last line of verse 14. 
unto the praise of his glory. So that phrase, unto the praise of his glory, is repeated three times in between verses 3 through 14. That's the, that's the line that Paul uses to tell you how many, how many spiritual blessings he's thanking God for or he's giving praise to God for. That phrase, under the praise of his glory, marks off each of the three units of, uh, that he wants to, that's how he's dividing it. He couldn't, he couldn't, like, he didn't have an out, he couldn't use an outline. He couldn't use something like what I've passed out. In fact, the text Paul wrote didn't even have spaces between the words. So there was, there was not a way to, like, use paragraph markers or dots or something like that. So in order to mark off the movements of your thought, they'd use rhetorical phrases like the repetition of phrases or they'd start a unit with the same phrase and then end it with the same phrase. So in this instance, you've got that phrase under the praise of his glory, which marks off the three units. The first one is verses uh, three through six, praising God for his election and in association with that, our adoption to sonship. That means beginning at verse seven, and going through verse 12, you've got the second spiritual blessing. And it's redemption. That's the second spiritual blessing he wants to thank God for. In verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he poured out on us. I'll pause there. So that's where he starts. Here is one of those wonderful words that Paul likes to use to describe what God has done for us in Christ. The word is redemption. And he really likes that word. He uses it repeatedly. I think he uses it, I probably put it in the notes there, it's something like 14 times in his letters and, and almost all of those uses are in Ephesians. So he likes the term, he really likes it in Ephesians. So what is redemption? You know, we've got all these great words to describe what God has done for us in Christ. And we, we often don't distinguish well between those words. We talk about salvation. We talk about redemption. We talk about propitiation. We talk about reconciliation. But we don't do a very good job of, of teasing out the nuances of all these words. So here, in whom we have redemption. Redemption is a word that means to be set free. It has to do with a slave being purchased, someone paying the price for a slave and then setting them free. And the price paid for a slave to be set free was called, the word is ransom. So does that recall any words of Jesus like Mark 10, 45? He said, I give my life as a ransom for many. That, that's the language of somehow Jesus' giving of his life is the ransom paid in order to set the slaves free. Now, if you're Jewish and you hear this language of a slave market and slaves going free, of course, what would be the event in your history that you'd think about? You'd think about the Exodus. You'd think about being slaves in Egypt and being set free from that slavery. And of course, God did that through a deliverer, Moses. And Jesus then in the New Testament is very much cast as a new Moses in, in, in lots of ways. The parallels between Jesus and Moses are just striking. And I'm sure I've done all this here before, 
so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna overdo it but just to point out a few things just think about when Moses is born there's a decree by a foreign oppressor oppressor of the Jewish people that Jewish infants must die when Jesus is born there's a decree by Herod the Great uh, that Jewish babies male babies two years and under must die um, when you think about where was the place of Moses refuge it was Egypt and actually the house of Pharaoh where did Jesus go to escape what was his place of refuge where did Mary and Joseph take Jesus to escape the decree Egypt and and then you think about when they were set free from slavery in Egypt they went through the water right the, the, the Red Sea but they went through the water they come out of the water and they eventually end up where after Mount Sinai they end up where in the wilderness in the desert before they get to the promised land and how long are they in the wilderness 40 years now think about Jesus track he goes out to the Jordan he's baptized uh, by John the Baptist he goes into the water immediately after coming up out of the water where does he go into the wilderness how long is he tempted 40 days and there's just uh, there's there's lots of those kinds of uh, images that are parallel between Jesus and Moses so now let's think about this redemption again that he's referring to here look at the language in whom we have redemption through his blood now, if you go back to the Exodus account how God brought about setting the slaves free it involved blood didn't it the blood of a what the blood of a lamb it, 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 the you know the plagues didn't work At least the other plagues didn't work but the final plague was the firstborn males children in all the households were dying because the death angel would pass over unless you had the blood of a lamb on your doorpost which would cause the death angel to pass over well only the Jewish families knew to put the blood on the doorpost so it was the blood of the lamb and and which protected the Jewish households but it the lack of that on the other households caused their firstborn sons to die and Pharaoh said get these people out of here they're, our children are dying so it, it all in, in a sense it was by the blood of a lamb that God brings about the redemption the freedom of Egyptian slave of the Egyptian slaves so that image works perfectly to describe something that Jesus has done for us by his blood he has set us free from our slavery we were enslaved to sin to ourselves if you want to keep the s's going to Satan and by his blood he has purchased us he set us free he, he bought we we're bought and paid for by his blood and that and that's the that's the redemption the ransom was his blood that's the price he paid now I get uncomfortable going much further than that with this metaphor with this image you know you can press it a little further and say well who is the ransom paid to you know if Jesus blood was the ransom price for our freedom then to whom was that paid and if you ask well who enslaved us you say Satan enslaved us then did Jesus pay a ransom to Satan in order to set us free that sounds like 
like he's in charge or something. Jesus didn't pay a ransom to Satan. He defeated Satan. He didn't pay him off. He didn't buy him. He defeated him. And God was not the one enslaving us. So it doesn't work to think of Jesus somehow purchasing our freedom from God. He wasn't the slave master. So I think it's one of those where any image can be pushed too far. And in this case, I think if you demand to figure out, well, who was the ransom paid to, you're probably pushing the image too far, too hard. I'm just content to say by the blood of the Lamb, uh, God set us free from our slavery without having to specify to whom the ransom uh, specifically was paid. I think it, it's causing, causing us to work that image or that metaphor a little too hard. And then in the second part of verse 8, he says, In all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, you remember this morning I was talking about... Um, the prayer was that God, that God would open their minds, that, that by His Spirit, He would give wisdom and revelation. And I said, knowledge of God is something that comes by revelation, ultimately. Knowledge of God is not the kind of, it's, it's not the kind of knowledge, if you think about, like, let's say you, you learn the periodic table, you know, silver or whatever I, I i had to learn the periodic chart or periodic table i had to learn that i think i was maybe a sophomore in high school maybe or a junior in high school we had to we had to reproduce the chart and i went one year to danville high school which is in central kentucky i was a mountain kid from southeastern kentucky nobody in middlesbrough even knew what a periodic chart was but when i moved to danville i mean i had like a you know, I had a really high GPA in Middlesbrough. I went to Danville, and I'm like, these kids are smart. And uh, I remember studying to memorize that periodic table. Please don't present me with that table after our first session here and ask me to fill it in, because I assure you, I couldn't do it anymore. But knowledge of God doesn't work like that. You don't study like that. You can't study it and know God like that. It's not like studying the biology of the human body in order to understand more about the body. It's not like studying facts about the Revolutionary War or World War II and gaining knowledge of that. Knowledge of God is a different kind of knowledge. And ultimately, you can use your mind without a doubt. And I think faith in God can be reasonable and rational. It's not always just a leap in the dark. But ultimately, it comes by revelation. And, and here's the same kind of language that I think we talked about when we were talking about this morning, having made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. It's like the mystery of God's will is like a secret that God has revealed now. It's not something that you, that they've, that you study and understand. It's something that is revealed. It's like something that's hidden, and now God makes it known. That's the nature of knowledge of God, whereby God reveals himself. He makes known himself to us. And, and when he talks about the mystery of his will, that's something that has to, we come to know that by God's revelation to us. According to the good pleasure, his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. 
Now the thought keeps going. Verse 10. For, and here I'm interested in your translations, how it handles it. I would say for the administration of the fullness of the times. I'd use the word administration here or activity of administrating. It's a, it's a really um, wonderful Greek word, but kind of hard to translate and capture the meaning. Um, I'm interested, I bet some of you have a translation that says something like plan, uh, like something like for the plans for the fullness of times or the, something like that. Or dispensation, you said the plan for the fullness of the times. Is that NIV? Is that, does NIV say, say administration? Uh, you, have, you have administration, so several of you have that. That's actually the word I would use, or it, it's actually like more like activity of administrating. So this word he uses describes a person, often it's the one who administrates a household. It's a word, oikonomos, and the oikos is the word for home or house. And so the oikonomos is like the administrator of the household, the person who organizes and administrates a household. And oftentimes it was a slave that had sort of been uh, elevated into the, you know, they'd earn the trust of the master of the household and would have eventually give them responsibilities, even to the point of them being in charge of the education of the children, the administrating of the inheritance, and all these things done by the administrator of the household. And that's the word that is here. I kind of like, I'd kind of like translate something like, uh, for the activity of administrating the fullness of the times. But you understand the idea. It, it's, it's the one who's doing the planning. That's where you get the word plan. It, it, but I like the activity of doing it, not just the plan itself, but the one who is actively planning or administrating the fullness of the times. Now, in this instance, that, that person who's doing that here is God. God is the one who is administrating the fullness of the times. If you... Uh, I think I quoted this morning with respect to adoption. Galatians 4.4 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. There's our redemption word again. Uh, that we might receive adoption to sonship. But did you hear the first line of that? When the fullness of time had come. And that's singular there. Fullness of time. Here... It's the fullness of the times, plural. You see that? And that makes a difference. When Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, he's referring there specifically to the incarnation. That's God taking upon himself human flesh. The second person of the Trinity, the son taking upon himself human flesh. Here, that's, this is not a reference to the incarnation. When he says, according to, the good, to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ for the activity of administrating the fullness of the times. The fullness of the times is a reference to end times. Or, or God bringing his plan to fruition, to its completion. The idea here is 
that history's not just chugging along and it's going to come to an end at some point and God will say, well, that's it. You know, and it could be ugly. You know, like uh, if you're in a car and it goes over the cliff, that, you know, that's the end. But that's not really a conclusion, not a predetermined conclusion. The picture here is that, that God, in his wisdom, has a plan. And that plan is being carried out in history. God is administrating it. That's what providence is, the, it, 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 that God has control of history. And he is orchestrating events and times to bring it to its proper conclusion, not just to an end. It's not like something just going over the edge. It's more like bringing something in safely for a landing. A plan with intention, conclusion. Um, I've got a Bible that I, I used to carry a lot and use a lot. Used it, especially if it were Old Testament we were studying. And uh, we, we had a dog. That dog, Macy, I told you, was the same name as Luke's girlfriend. Sadly, the dog, Macy, who we'd had for, I think, five, we'd had her five years. Funny things you identify with your dog. We went to Omaha and picked up the dog, Macy, who was like five or six months old at the time, on spring break, I think five years ago. And we got back home, and Kentucky was playing Kansas State in the NCAA tournament, and they beat us. And to, tonight, today, they beat us again, the same team, Kansas State. But anyway, why all that came together in my mind, uh, I, I, I couldn't, couldn't really tell you. But we went, to, we went to Omaha and picked up this King Charles Cavalier, uh, which, which has been, the, we just love, yeah, you're, aw, they, they're the most wonderful dogs that, we, that we've ever had. So we've had four of them now, and three have died. And Macy, uh, we'd had her, I, she was just over five years old. And these dogs have heart issues. And she developed an enlarged heart, we found out. And this was like September. And the day after Thanksgiving, she was just in the back. And she'd, she'd not been acting quite right, but we, we'd had her into the vet, and she was taking Lasix. And, and Levi's sitting at the table, and he looked out, and he said, why is Macy laying down outside, which she never did? And she just died of a heart attack uh, in the backyard. Best dog I ever had. I've grieved that dog, still grieve that dog. It's crazy how attached we get to these animals. She was just such a wonderful dog. But she did do one thing that was not good in her life, and that is my Bible, this Bible, I'm back to my story now. I'm back. Come back. My Bible was laying on the floor in my study. I'll set books down and, you know, well, I set my Bible on the ground. She probably shouldn't have done that. My grandmother said, don't ever set your Bible on the ground. So I should have done, shouldn't have done it. But I did. And then I got up and was doing something. I came back in. And little Macy was in the floor chewing on my Bible. And she chewed out several pages at the end of Revelation. The book of Revelation. She just chewed them right out. Uh, so... I can't use that Bible anymore to teach Revelation because chapters 18, 19, 20, 21 are gone. 
So if you want to see that Bible, if I were to have brought it tonight, and you open it up, you, if you said, well, I think I'm going to read Revelation in Dr. Kelly's Bible, it's going to come to an end, like in chapter 17. But that's not the conclusion. There's a difference. What Paul, in other places as well as here, seems to be indicating is that God is administrating the fullness of the times. That there is a plan in place and God is carrying out this plan and in God's time, the fullness of the times, history will come to its proper conclusion, which God has predetermined. Which helps us relax a little bit. It's not like we're in this stagecoach and we're afraid it's going to go off the ledge. That's not, that's not the picture of history we ought to have. So when, when he talks about the activity of administrating the fullness of the times, this is God directing history to its proper conclusion. And he keeps on. In order to sum all things up in Christ. Part of the bringing things to its proper completion is for all things to be put under Jesus' lordship or headship. He actually uses a word here uh, that has the word head in it. And, and it's, like, it's like the administration of the fullness of the times is putting all things under the headship, the lordship of Jesus. That's where history is moving. That's where history is going. And that's what God is actively administrating. The things in heaven and the things on earth in him. In whom, verse 11, in whom also we were appointed heirs, having been predestined according to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the plan which flows from his will. That's a, that's, a, that's a torturous sentence that, that Paul has put together here. But you can see him doing this in Ephesians. Where like, like this morning, you know I mentioned there are four words for power in this one verse. Well, look at all the words for like God's planning, God's purpose. Here in verse 11. In whom we were appointed heirs, having been predestined or foreordained. That's, you, you see that word? Is predestined the word you're seeing there in verse 11, in whom we were appointed heirs? Something about having been predestined? You, you, most of you have that. Anybody have a word other than predestined? According to the purpose of the one who works all things according to the plan which flows from his will. So you got the predestined word which speaks of God's planning God's purpose then you've got the word for purpose you got the one who works according to his plan and that plan he describes as flowing from his will I mean it's just all this language of God's determination and will which is involved in our being appointed heirs and in God bringing things to its proper Conclusion, verse 12, in order that we might be under the praise of his glory. We, those who hope in Christ, might, might be under the praise of his glory. Now that brings the second spiritual blessing to a conclusion, right? That, that phrase, 
praise of his glory is the dividing phrase so what was the first spiritual blessing so if you go back to verse 3 he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ the first spiritual blessing was election just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption so that was the first and then at the end of verse 6 you see under the praise of his glory and then verse 7 the second spiritual blessing is redemption in whom we have redemption now he goes on to talk about like by wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will but all this ultimately comes back to redemption that we were slaves we've now been set free and we've been appointed heirs we were slaves now heirs we were orphans now heirs and then we have at the end of 12 under the praise of his glory that leaves one spiritual blessing here in verses 13 and 14 and the spiritual blessing here is the gift of the Holy Spirit which is the guarantee of more to come so in verse 13 he says in whom also you after hearing the word of truth the gospel of our salvation in which also after believing you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and when you think about being sealed by the Holy Spirit you should think about like I don't know if you're if you uh, maybe a, a very modern version of, of what he's thinking about is like a notary public you know like certain documents especially if you're doing business like via distance where you have to put things in the mail sometimes or maybe load it scan it into your computer and send it across the country you know you can do business now like my dad was in the hospital in Hazard Kentucky then he was in a nursing home and I handled all his business from a thousand miles away and the only thing I had to go back there for was to secure power of attorney uh, when he first when it was clear he wasn't gonna be able to go back home I couldn't do that from a thousand miles away but I've, I've we've got notary public at OBU or I don't know how much money I would have been spending on notary public because so many so much of that kind of tra transaction requires a notary public well that notary public stamp and signature that they put on there is a seal that this is a legitimate document that the contents of this are legitimate that these signatures are legitimate that this person did sign this it authenticates and and that's how seals were, were used in the ancient world often on documents and you might think about the book of Revelation which has the seven seals when a document is open it's sealed these are sealed documents which are open well though that seal authenticates the document as being from whom it claims to be from so it's about authentication it's also about ownership the seal would indicate it could be a mark of ownership again a modern example I don't have any cattle I've never been a farmer I did have a pony one time when I was a kid but uh, we didn't brand the pony but if you've got cattle at least where I'm from 
there's a brand you put on the cattle in order to indicate ownership. And um, this happened in the ancient world with, with livestock. This happened uh, in a variety of ways, including, like I think I mentioned this morning, Exodus mentioned that priests were marked with a mark, holy unto the Lord. It was a mark of ownership. And, and so that's what he's talking about, that you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit has sealed us. He's the stamp, the mark that we belong to God. It authenticates us as genuinely the people of God. And it shows ownership. We belong to God. So those two ideas of authentication and ownership are both present in this image of being sealed. And it, but he continues in verse 14. Which is, that is the Spirit, which is the down payment or the guarantee of our inheritance. Now I'm interested here in your English translations here in verse 14. Which is the down payment or guarantee? That's a couple of words I'm using. Do you have something other than down payment or guarantee of our, inherit, of our inheritance? Pledge. Earnest. When I hear earnest, you think about earnest money, right? If you're trying to, maybe you want to buy something and you don't want to pay off for all of it at the moment, or maybe they don't want you to pay at the moment, but you have to put some earnest money down. That means if you don't come back and pay the full, you lose that money. At least that's how I understand earnest money. Um, but he says that the Holy Spirit of promise, which has sealed you, is also this guarantee or down payment um, of more to come with respect to God. That whatever you have as you sit here tonight as a result of your relationship to God is not everything. I mean, we, we instinctively know that as we sit here tonight, stand here tonight for me, that, that this isn't everything. I mean, my life's been changed. I've been transformed. I'm no longer in Adam. I'm in Christ. But this isn't everything. And if you need any evidence of that, just look at me versus 2005 when I was doing Mark. I've aged a lot. And I don't even have to see a picture of 2005. I know it. I, I know it when I look in the mirror. You know, I feel good. I don't feel any different, really, as I stand here today than I did in 2005. But all I need to do is pass in front of a mirror and I say, oh, who's that guy? And I, and I just told you that I qualify now for the senior center in Shawnee. I just refuse to go. Seriously. I don't. I walk in there like I'm 25 years old, and if, they, if they're trying to get me to do something there with those uh, with, uh, senior folks, I'm just like, what? Nah. I mean, I'd, I almost said old folks, but that's where I am. So I, I guess I've, I, legitimately I'm there now. But, you know, I, I, got, I got some, I mean, look at these glasses I'm having to wear, and somebody mentioned my, asked me if my hair is different this morning, I just said probably a little more gray. And I get it cut a little bit less. Uh, I used to get it cut real short all the time. That was my strategy for dealing with it being gray. Was just get it cut so short you couldn't tell. But then it was like I didn't even have hair. So I just decided to let it grow and be gray. So whatever, it's fine. Uh, I don't worry about it too much. 
But this isn't it. This body is not made for eternity. And even death is not everything. It's not like at death you get it all. The thing is the resurrection of the body. Now at death, you're with the Lord. Uh, I, I have no doubt that it's all good, but there's still a longing for the resurrection of the body. There's something else out there. Not just from where we are right here tonight, but even after death, there's still something out there waiting on us. The resurrection of the body. And what it, well, how do we know? How can we be confident that God's going to follow through? The Spirit is the promise, the pledge, the earnest money that there's more to come. So I told you uh, that Luke is really, he's crazy about Macy, the human being, not Macy, the dog. And, um, and, and, and he would probably like to propose to her, he's just not quite, there's several things not quite ready I think for that to happen but I guess he could drop down on a knee tonight where he could go over to her apartment at OBU and you know fall down on one knee and say will you marry me and she might be waiting on him to pull out a ring and and he might he might say now I don't have a ring but I give you my word and she should say, well, that's fine, but I'd really like to have a ring. Because I'd trust a ring more than just your word, right? I need a ring. There's a reason there's a ring. The ring's the guarantee that there's more to come. And that's the picture here. In fact, the word that he uses here, that Paul uses, for which is the down payment, arabon, is, is a Greek, modern Greek word for uh, engagement ring. It's like the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring of, of a, you know, full marriage to come. And for this, this is a spiritual blessing in Paul's thinking. The, the Holy Spirit seals us and is the, is the guarantee. It's like the engagement ring uh, that, that there's more to come in terms of what God has for us. And then he finishes out leading to the redemption of what God purchased under the praise of his glory. And that's where he ends that. So that's the section of praise. After the first two verses of opening, then he goes into thanking God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for every spiritual blessing which he's given to us uh, in Christ in the heavenlies. Election, redemption, and the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of more to come. That's, the, that's what he, gives, he blesses God and gives praise to God for these spiritual blessings. Then, if you think about what we did this morning, the next section before we get to the body is the prayer section. And that's the prayer he prays on behalf of them. And I'm not going to redo that because we did that this morning. That's excellent because I'm, I can use the extra time. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. 
Yeah, yes, yep, absolutely. So now look at your outline. You there with me? And you look at, uh, turn the page to the top of the second page. So it'd be, I guess you'd want to say the third page, but if we count that as page one and then the back of that is two, I don't know how you're counting it. But if you look to the next page, you see body? That's, that's where we are. So, so we're going to look at two, chapter 2 uh, and chapter 3 in the time that we have remaining tonight. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how chapter 2 is structured, how it's laid out here. Because it's beautifully done. It's clearly very carefully structured. And it helps you to see the structure that Paul, how he's put his thoughts together here. Now, this whole section deals with the implications of what it means to be in Christ. The implications of these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, in the heavenlies. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, deals with these spiritual blessings for the individual. Then, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, deals with more broadly like like spiritual blessings for a nation or a people more broadly okay so it's individual versus nation so one's very very individualistic the other is more talks about Jew and Gentile okay so 2 1 through 10 individual 2 11 through 22 is more Jew Gentile okay now let's now let's look more specifically look in chapter 2 and if you want to look at the outline you can you can see it here but I've broken it up 2 1 through 10 into three sections okay the first is the human predicament you know what a predicament is don't you a, I tried to think of a plight p-l-i-g-h-t plight I, sometimes I use the language of being in, in, in a stew, that you're in a, you're in a bad spot. Well, that's to put it mildly. He builds the case here at the start of each of these sections of the human predicament. And that, that would be two, one through three. That's the human predicament. Basically, here it is. You were dead. How's that for a human predicament? You were dead. Then the next section is God's work of grace. That's going to be verses 4 through 7. Now, you were dead. Guess what God's work of grace is going to be? He made you alive. By God's grace. For by grace are you saved. He made you alive and he made you to sit uh, at the right hand in the heavenlies. That's God's work of grace, verses 4 through 7. And then, verses 8, 9, and 10 are the consequences of the new life. And, and that is that we should do good works. So, for the individual, here's how he sets it out. The human predicament, you were dead. God's work of grace, he made you alive. And the consequences of that, you were created for good works. Now that's the individual. Then in 11 through 22, we get the same structure. It starts with the human predicament. Only now the, the predicament or the plight is that Gentiles were separated from Jews. 
That's the plight. That's the predicament. Now, it's not really a predicament for, Gen for Jews. It's a predicament for Gentiles. And I'm, I'm confident that the majority of Paul's believers in the church at Ephesus would have been Gentile believers. I mean, there, there are relatively small communities of Jews in these areas outside of Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, and Rome. That'd be four areas where you have high Jewish populations. But out in a place like Ephesus, it would be a small Jewish population. So the church is overwhelmingly Gentile Christian. So he's talking primarily to Gentile Christians. And he's reminding them that you were in a predicament. You were in a stew. And what was that predicament? You were separated from the nation of Israel. You didn't have access to God. You didn't have access to the promises of God. You didn't have access to the covenants of promise. You were in a terrible predicament. That's the plight. Not as individuals as much as, as Gentiles as a, as a people. What's next? God's work of grace. And if you look at, that's going to be like verses 14 through 18. God's work of grace is, he tore down the dividing wall. There was a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Well, Jesus just tore that wall right down. And now the two have been made one. And now Gentiles have access to God and to the covenants of promise. Pretty good deal for us Gentiles. And then the consequences of that is going to be verses 19 through 22. There is now a multi-ethnic church. Not just Jewish church. Jew-Gentile, multi-ethnic people of God. Now, can you see then the parallels? Human predicament, God's work of grace, the consequences of that for the individual. Verses 1 through 10. Then verses 11 through 22, the same thing, only now it's for Gentiles. Human predicament, God's work of grace, and the consequences. So let's go ahead and dive into this, the first one, 2, 1 through, 11, or 1 through 10. So let's start with the human predicament. That's going to be 2, 1 through 3. And you... Although dead in your trespasses and sins, in which formerly you walked, according to this world age, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience, in whom also you all conducted yourselves or lived formerly in the lusts of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind, and we were children of wrath by nature, as also the others. Now, I would encourage you to go back and look at verses 1 through 3, three, verses one through three and see if you can find any light in this very dark predicament. There's not any. It's, it describes a terrible situation. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. He doesn't use the language here of like being that you were sick. You know, you can, you can often work with sickness. Death's another matter. He didn't say you were spiritually ill, like you had a fever. 
or, or, or you, you, maybe you were sort of had you know, spiritual cancer or something like that. No, you were dead. And you were children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. Just couldn't be any darker situation. And, and I think it's a good thing sometimes to remember what life was like before Christ. And for those of us who became believers early in life, it's easy to forget. You might not even remember what your life was like before you were a follower of Jesus. It's easy to forget for me. I was 10 years old uh, when I, the best I understood, the best I knew how, I called upon the name of Jesus, committed myself to follow him. Um, I didn't understand a lot about what that meant. But hey, I stand here today, 57 years old, with a PhD in New Testament studies, and I still struggle to understand the depths of what, all the, uh, what it all means. Uh, you can probably hear me work, trying to work a lot of it out when I'm teaching you. So it's good to remember, and the way he describes it is, we were in a terrible predicament. And, and we were being ruled. You notice in verse 10 he says, in which formerly you walked according to this present world age. This present world age. That's a way to refer to this fallen world, a world that is set against God and God's purposes. The world. And then according to the ruler of the, of the domain of the air. The ruler of the domain of the air. Who's that? Satan or the devil. So we got the world. We got the devil. And then he says, in whom also we conducted ourselves formerly in the lusts of our flesh. There's flesh. So before we were the people of God, before we were in Christ, when, when we were just going our own way, we were ruled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's like the unholy trinity. That's who we were ruled by. Now people who come to Jesus later in life, they often can remember more clearly what life was like. How they were ruled by these forces. So that was the plight. But in 4, here's the good news. Here's God's work of grace, beginning in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. God's rich, right? God's rich in everything. But there is nothing that God is more rich in than mercy and grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, and although we were dead in our trespasses, here it is. He made us alive in Christ. There's the great work of grace. We were dead. That was our plight. And by his grace, he has offered this solution. He has made us alive. Well, that's exactly what a dead person needs to be made alive. And that's what he's done for us in Christ. He made you alive. By grace, have you, you have been saved, and, he is raised, and you were raised up together, and you are seated with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. How about that language? 
he, you, he made you alive. We've been raised up with him and seated together with Christ in the heavenlies. Raised up, seated with him in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. Now you might be thinking as you sit here tonight, well, I don't feel like I'm seated at the right hand. I don't feel like, you know, that, I, that I'm sitting at the right hand in the heavenlies. I'm sitting here in Moore, Oklahoma. It's not quite the heavenlies. And it's just hard to imagine. Well, what could that mean? That sounds like it's something that's pre true in the present time. And, and I think it is true at the present time. That in Christ... We have died, but we have been raised, and we are seated with him. Now, that's hard to imagine. But, you know, I think we do all right with the we were raised with him. I think we do all right with somehow we died with him, that his death was on our behalf. So we think about Jesus dying and being raised. We think about, well, that, was, we, that happens for us, and, and in a sense, we die with him, and we are raised with him. That's what baptism is. We demonstrate that, right? What happens in baptism? We take the candidate. Whew. See, Baptists do it right. Because now what have we done? We have buried them. That's a picture of they have died and they are buried with Christ. And we don't hold them on under too long, do we? We just get them all wet. And then in a very short time, we bring them right back up and we say something like, raised to walk in a new life with them. That's a picture of death and resurrection that has happened to us and we, we identify with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Well, this just goes to the next level. Yes, we've died with him. Yes, we've been raised with him. And we're also seated with him. We participate with him in this exaltation. Now there's more to come, right? We got the, we're wearing the engagement ring called the Holy Spirit. And, um, and then let's go to verse 8. So here's the consequences of all that. He repeats again, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone might boast. I'll repeat it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone might boast. Now this is, a, I've heard this taught so many times. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. See that little pronoun, this. It's a demonstrative pronoun, this. If we're just reading this in English, it looks like this is referring to faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. In English, when we find that what a, what a pronoun points to, we usually just look for the noun closest to it. You know, most recently before it. But in Greek, you can be more specific. Now they've got gender to their nouns. Now, I'm going to talk here about gender, and, but I'm not going to talk biological gender tonight. I'm talking grammatical gender. It's a lot safer topic these days. So nouns in Greek can be masculine, feminine, or neuter. 
English has the same thing. We just don't worry much about it. And it's very intuitive in English. You know, like a, a man would be masculine, a woman would be feminine, and like, you know, this, this would be a neuter because it's not a person. But in Greek, it doesn't work like that. Like, you, you have to pay attention because like the word for sin is, is, is hamartia. It's a feminine noun. How about that, ladies? The word for sin is a feminine noun, hamartia. And somebody could probably make an argument, well, of course it is, Eve, you know, Eve, right? But now hang on. The word for sinner, hamartalos, is masculine. Mm, Adam, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't want to make, see, I'm not talking theological genders, I'm talking grammatical gender. And that's how Greek nouns work. You have to pay close attention. They can be masculine, they can be feminine, they can be neuter. And you can't always just figure it out. It's not always evident. You just have to know. Well, when they use a pronoun, if they want to refer to a masculine noun, they'll use a masculine pronoun. If they want to refer to a feminine noun, they'll use a feminine pronoun. If they want to refer to a neuter noun, they'll use a neuter pronoun. And they can change the ending to be masculine, feminine, or neuter. You glazing over yet? Just think if you had this every morning at 8 o'clock. That's, that's when my Greek class is. Eight, I've got an 8 and 9 o'clock. The 9 o'clock's the first year. That's where we'd be doing this. But here it is. Here's the payoff of all that. The this, not of yourselves, is neuter. Okay? It's a neuter pronoun. The word faith is a feminine noun. You know what that means? That means Paul's not saying this is not of yourselves. He's not saying faith is not of yourselves. The, the antecedent of this is not faith. If it was, he'd used a feminine pronoun, but he used a neuter. So for by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, this does not refer to faith. He's not saying, and faith is, is a gift of God. It, it, we could argue it is from other passages, but that's not what he's saying here. And then you start looking through there. What's, what's another interesting noun that maybe it's referring to? How about grace? He's saying grace. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Grace is a feminine noun too. And the pronoun is neuter. So if you start looking in there for well, where's the neuter noun? There's not one. Which means, and they do this a lot in Greek, you use a neuter pronoun to refer to the whole idea rather than just a specific noun. So here's what Paul was saying in this great work of grace and the consequences of it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, that is the whole process of salvation, is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Because if it were by human effort and ingenuity, we would certainly boast about it. But it is not. The process of salvation itself is the gift of God. And thus no, no human being can boast. This is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is the whole process of salvation. Verse 9, or verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in order that we might walk in them. 
So here's the, here's the consequence of this great work of grace that God has worked in our lives. We are His workmanship. And I'm interested in what your translation does with that verse 10. We are His workmanship. Is workmanship the word that most of your translation use? You could translate it work of art. We are His work of art. Think of God as the great artist. He has made us. We are His workmanship. We are His great work of art. If you think of God as a poet, we are His poem. If you think of God as a painter, we are His portrait that He has painted. We are God's workmanship. I love that image. If it's, you think about a potter fashioning a beautiful jar, God is the potter and we're the jar. With his skill and with his creativity, he has fashioned us. We are his workmanship. It's just the most amazing thought. I mean, I, I told you this morning I saw the beautiful sunset driving back from Texas, looking over here to my left as we were driving up 35. You think, man, what, what human being could, could create something that beautiful? It's God is the great artist, the greatest artist, and we are his creative product, created for good works, which he has prepared in advance or beforehand that we might walk in them. And oftentimes, we kind of struggle to go from God's grace to works, but there's not we don't have to be afraid of talking about good works. They're the natural consequence of experiencing God's grace. If there's no works, it raises real questions about whether we really experience God's grace. In fact, and I'll end with this, when he says, which God prepared in advance or prepared beforehand. Do you see that in verse 10? Again, it's the language of election. Only this time the election is good works. God's election applies as much to good works as it does salvation. He is prepared in advance good works for us to perform. And uh, you think about what those are that God has preordained, foreordained, prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Don't be afraid to talk about good works. They're the natural consequence of experiencing God's grace.